A new report called The Impacts of the Coronavirus Pandemic on Convention Bureau in Europe has thrown fresh light on the financial hit suffered by destination marketing organisations over the last 12 months. I'm joined today by the report's author, Rob Davison from Mice Knowledge, to discuss its key findings. Rob, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you very much, James. Your report suggests that one in three Convention Bureau have suffered public sector funding cuts. That figure to me doesn't strike me as particularly surprising given the year we've had. But I note that the depth of some of those cuts um, is probably of more concern. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was uh, pleased that, that not more of them, uh, convention bureaus, had uh, had cuts to their budgets. But as you say, some of those cuts are pretty severe. We have one convention bureau with an 80% cut in their budget, 80%. Another one with 60, another one with 50. Mercifully, most of the cuts were under uh, 50%, but nevertheless, even that is uh, substantial. And as it says in the report, those cuts were the main reason for the other cuts that we saw, which are cuts in staff numbers. Um, Mm. 30% of convention bureaus said that budget cuts were the reason why they'd had to lose um, staff. So that's, you know, that's a serious side of the, the whole picture. The only thing to point out, I think, on the other side of this is that it has been a year when many convention bureaus have been spending less as well. Um, They haven't been going to exhibitions um, or workshops. Um, It says elsewhere in the report that advertising has been cut. um, Events such as ambassador program, award ceremonies, all those things, uh, there's been a lot less spending on those uh, in fact, so that's the other side of that problem. Right. So, so their their overheads uh, have been down as well. So that takes some of the pressure off. Um, we also see that three quarters of uh, convention bureau who see private sector funding from their members have seen income fall from these sources over the last twelve months. That to me suggests that the, the wider supply chain, the, the, the hotels, uh, they're really hurting too. Um, do you think that could bounce back quickly or do you foresee a long, long recovery there? In my opinion, it really depends on one major issue, and that's confidence levels. I think that uh, when we see individuals and businesses with more confidence about the future, for example, considering it's safe to travel, um, deciding that, yes, companies can afford um, to have events again, um, when that moment comes and confidence, confidence is restored, I think very quickly we'll see a recovery. There's a, there must be, there must be a massive backlog um, of events uh, that simply need to uh, go ahead. Uh, medical people, medical associations in particular, can you imagine how much they have to say to each other mm. now? They need desperately to get together to talk about this pandemic to see what we can do to avoid a, another one. Similarly, in the corporate market, I think uh, there are so many colleagues who haven't seen each other uh, for over a year. There's going to be a massive demand for mm. team building. There's going to be recruitment going on, training, induction um, events. And even in the longer term, when that initial surge is over, I think most people seem to agree that there's going to be a lot more working from home 
Mm. And I think for the corporate market, that opens up opportunities where companies can have regular, maybe fortnightly um, events in, in some venue to bring people to, together. So mm. I'm optimistic, but I wish I knew when this yeah. is all going to start rolling again. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the real uncertainty that's been with us for the last 12 months, hasn't it? That sort of timeline out of this. So the, these are challenging times for a convention bureau, as your, your report uh, points out. Um, what was interesting about your report is that there's some evidence in there, isn't there, that the Bureau are repositioning themselves in, in, in sometimes quite subtle ways as um, more than just logistics, sort of they're becoming more like stewards of their destination. I know, I know there's been this um, move to refer to destination marketing organisations now as destination management organisations. But I'm also thinking in terms of sustainability, taking a lead on that. So do you see convention bureaus sort of widening their their remit a bit and if so what do you think sort of driving that well definitely you know i think uh, convention bureaus well like many of us are simply going to have to forge some kind of new identity when when this is all over and mm. from the report from the survey there's a lot of indication uh that they will be um looking much more at the 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 management the infrastructure and the the human infrastructure as well the the people working in the destination, I was very surprised at the um, frequency with which sustainability came up in people's responses. Uh, it was mentioned in, in training and in the, the management infrastructure. Uh, you know, I've heard quite a few times in the past year that clean is the new green. Mm. Um, and that's <laughs> probably true, but I don't think it means that green is going to go away. And uh, far from it. Uh, you know, I saw convention bureaus saying that they were actively encouraging their suppliers in the destination to get um, accreditations uh, for sustainability, um, benchmarking like the sustainability uh, index for destinations, green key. Uh, one mm. convention bureau even said they were paying uh, part of the, uh, the cost of getting those accreditation. So they're taking it very, very seriously. And maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised um, in that. I was less surprised about the knowledge, uh, the knowledge hub. And of course, <laughs> being mice knowledge, that's a very encouraging um, yeah. for me. A few convention bureaus say, said that in the future, they'll regard that knowledge um, hub aspect as being just as important as their, their marketing being the repository of data, knowledge, statistics right. for their members, for their suppliers. I think that's very encouraging. Right. So from, from for their members and suppliers, but also are they looking at positioning their destinations in that sense, sort of uh, sort of intellectual capitals, or are they looking at the clusters that are the industrial clusters and sort of selling events or bidding with, with that in mind? Are they doing that more and more? Oh, yes. Well, of course, um, they are, they will be, um, and that's a, a wonderful trend that began pre-pandemic, um, where mm. instead of looking at that, the hardware, you know, the airports and the hotels and venues, they were looking at the software of uh, knowledge and expertise, you know, the things that actually make the destination stand out. Mm. And I think that was a, a major shift and a very welcome one. And that's got to just intensify when this is all over. They'll yeah. be looking at what do we make? What do we grow? What do we know? Um, the laboratories, the research establishments, 
um, in the destination. Those are going to be much more important, more important than ever. Yeah, that's interesting. I noted also that this is probably a little bit more depressing, but where there had been a reduction in headcount, um, many bureau reported that staff had been poached to go and work in other government departments. Um, what does that tell us about the way government views business events at the moment as a driver of economies? Um, does it tell us anything or are we reading too much into it? Or, or what, what do you think about that? Well, this made me smile because uh, it took me back to my very first job after university, which was in local um, government. And uh, whenever elections came along, they just shifted us from that department into counting votes. It was like, right. you know, okay, you'll do. And they rounded us up and took us off to the polling stations. It was fun, actually. We all enjoyed the, um, the change, although it was nothing to do with our, um, our real job. Um, but it's, um, I think what is the other side of that is that those um, uh, shifts are only temporary. Right. Um, and I, I'm expecting that people will return um, to their, their main function uh, after this is all over. But, you know, there's been some amazing examples of that. I've got one of my own ex-students who works for the London Convention Bureau normally. And uh, for the past few months, she's been working for the vaccination program and right. loving it. So, you know, uh, it's a case of all hands on deck in a way and everyone um, doing their bit. Um, but with the proviso that they will be back uh, to their chosen job when they can. Right. So this was just a practical uh, exercise, essentially, that you know, we only have so many people and they're not going to be doing much in the next 12 months because you can't have a meeting. So move them across to other departments. OK, that, that kind I of makes it's sense. Been seen as a non-essential function by, by many um, local authorities, local governments, and they just said, well, you know, people working for the Convention Bureau, they've got transferable skills, communication and this kind of thing, and they've moved them to other jobs, but yeah, temporarily. Temporarily, good. That's good to hear. Um, but it, it was not all bad news anyway, was it, in your report? There were some bureau who actually increased their budgets and headcounts. Um, to your mind, was there anything obvious that those cities had in common? Was, were they a particular size? Were they sort of second tier cities or did they have any obvious links? Well, I was intrigued by that and uh, uh, that was somewhat unexpected. Um, but when I looked at the Convention Bureau's who were lucky enough to get more money and, uh, and more staff. I couldn't see any obvious pattern that some of them were small, small cities, large cities. Some of them were national um, convention bureaus as well. There didn't seem to be any, um, any pattern. What I can say though, is that when it comes to more staff, well, in the first case, some of those extra staff members um, were already planned. They right. weren't um, you know, added on because of uh, the pandemic, um, but they were in the pipeline as re uh, recruitment and they went ahead, which is great for those convention uh, bureaus. But possibly more interestingly, a couple of convention bureaus said that their paymasters, their local authorities, um, had given them extra stuff to begin to prepare for post-pandemic recovery. Ah. And I thought that was very insightful and, and forward-looking. So we need more um, like that. And perhaps when uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is a bit brighter, then more um, of that will happen. But mm. um, 
yeah, those were the those were the lucky ones. Sadly, a, a minority, but at least the the picture wasn't all so bad. Yeah, but that that is that is encouraging that some uh, government departments see the value the sort of long-term value of, of business events and uh, sort of drivers of recovery now there was an interesting section in there on on bidding activity um that i'd just like to go into a bit more detail on uh because 15 percent of respondents said they had stopped or severely curtailed their bidding activity and when i talk about bidding activity we're talking about bidding for uh, events bidding bidding for meetings but not necessarily for the reasons you might expect but because the associations themselves had stopped putting in rfps was that right or or can you give us any bit more insight on that yeah th- that that is right uh, in fact it's not the case that convention bureaus are starting to ignore rfps because of course that's their lifeblood in in many ways yeah. i think the challenge is that associations um, because of the ongoing uncertainty about the duration of the pandemic, they're waiting. Mm. Uh, they're just waiting to see the timeline. We've had 12 months or more of postponements and then postponements turned into cancellations of um, uh, events. So associations seem to be waiting until they're, uh, until the future is a bit clearer. Now, I mm. think that they're quite comfortable in that waiting because, well, they know on the one hand that when uh, they don't have to wait any longer and they start choosing destinations and venues, they seem to be pretty confident that those destinations and venues will be available, that they, there will be uh, availability for, uh, for booking their events. That's one reason I think that they're waiting. The other reason, maybe a bit more complex, which is they're waiting to see and I don't know how they'll work this out, mm. but their members' intentions about attending future conferences. Oh, how many right. of the members are going to attend and how many are going to attend by just participating virtually or virtually or in um, a hybrid event? That's oh. an important question for associations because it all determines the size of the venue that they need um, Interestingly, on the other side of that, on the Convention Bureau side, um, quite a few actually smaller Convention Bureaus, well, Convention Bureaus of smaller destinations, were optimistic that because large association events might become smaller in terms of physical attendance, that they would therefore be able to bid for those um, events for the first time. Whereas normally it would be too big for them, you know, they... European Association of uh, Cardiology, for example. Mm. Well, you know, that's a massive one. Uh, if, and time will tell, if it's not going to be so massive in the future, then that event becomes possible uh, in more than the three or four cities that can host it at the moment. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they'll have big enough venues suddenly. Yeah. And um, that's going to be an interesting one. I think. That, yeah, that would, that would be sort of flipping the narrative on its head because what we hear from convention bureau uh, and venues is that now we're big enough to host x event this is why we're uh, adding another twenty thousand square meters to our our floor space but if it goes the other way that that could be interesting that a trend sort of uh, the drift is in the other direction um and that that leads me on to a, a point you mentioned there um in person and people attending on, on online and 
I noticed elsewhere in your report that something like 23%, I think it was, of convention bureaus see the hybrid model as something they're going to have to be working on in, in the future. Um, do, do you, do you, do you uh, see that that's trend? That's a widespread prediction, yeah. It is. It is a widespread uh, prediction. I, I'm. Um, I'm never quite sure what people mean mean by hybrid. Um, I know before the pandemic, um, it simply meant any an in person event with any kind of uh, virtual content, whether that's just streaming a few sessions or, or whatever. It seems to have seems to mean something a bit more than that now, doesn't it? It seems to mean a more kind of integrated. Uh, more of a kind of integrated meeting. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that we're beginning to realise that, you know, it's going to increase um, and therefore we, need, we simply need to get better at it and, mm. you know, uh, think much more in the future about the people following the event um, online, you know, with uh, better moderation, for example, for those yeah. people. You know, it's a big problem, big challenge. What do you do when the in-person participants pop off and have a half hour coffee break. Well, you know, you've got to do something to keep the online people uh, online. Yeah. And uh, I think we're getting, well, we have to get better at that. And I think that the role of the um, the person running the event, the, the moderator will mm. become more important and more complex. Yeah, yeah. And it'd be fascinating to see how it, how it pans out. Um, uh, but also, uh, sort of in tandem with the bidding activity, um, there's there's been an impact on the ambassador programs, hasn't there? Yeah, well, this was an interesting one, quite a mixed picture. Um, once again, um, 11 convention bureaus reported that they'd completely suspended all ambassador program activities. Another 11 said they were doing it by virtual only. So uh, things like um, digital awards, ceremonies for their uh, high-performing ambassadors. But then, on the other side of it, 11 convention bureaus reported that they had launched new mm. ambassador programs um, in the past year, um, with even more than that in the pipeline. So I'm quite optimistic about ambassador programs. I think it's taken a while, but I think now all convention bureaus are beginning to understand how effective they can be um, in, in winning events, actually using um, the men and women in the destination uh, to help to win these events, to lobby. Um, we're, we're getting better at that. I participated a couple of years ago in the, the UK um, Ambassadors uh, Organization gang. And uh, yeah, I was uh, really amazed at the expertise in that group. I think it used to be one of those jobs that you gave to the junior mm. uh, person in the convention bureau, but no longer. I think people are really beginning to understand that an effective ambassador program can make a, a huge difference and can give you the, the edge over uh, your competitor. So we're going to see more of those, definitely. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. There's an interesting report uh, by Gaining Edge not so long ago into ambassadors um, and, the, and how destinations, destinations uh, leverage their ambassador programs. And, yeah, it was fascinating. It was the second-tier cities that were kind of uh, better at it than the, than the super big cities. And I suspect that was simply because it's easier to get in touch with your academic community in the first place if you're a bit smaller. Um, I just imagine if you're in London or Paris, it, it, you know, you, it's quite resource heavy to actually get this network up and running, I guess, which is why you see it in the UK, places like Glasgow and Liverpool that have these more successful ambassador programs, maybe. 
Um, yeah, well, I've, I've been advising a few destinations on uh, ambassador programs um, because there is a huge interest in it. But you're absolutely right. It's those big cities who say, well, you know, we've got five universities. Um, how can we find people? Do we just turn up at the front door, for <laughs> yes. example? Well, no. Um, but the, the, the motivation is there. But, you know, we, we need to get better at um, sharing expertise between um, uh, between convention bureaus and ICA does that quite well, I think. Yeah, yeah, they're good. They're good job. I mean, the, the industry as a whole is quite good at that. I think the knowledge sharing. Um, I guess compared to some other industries, but then it's not. Despite all that's happened, there was there was also great optimism in the survey. That's what really struck me about it. Um, a lot of people seem to think, well, you know, the future is a bright one. Are you are you optimistic? The future is a bright one for <laughs> yeah, the industry. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I, I'm even more optimistic having read the responses to the, the survey. Um, uh, one proviso maybe is that I think marketing people generally are quite optimistic. Yes. Um, so, but putting that aside, uh, I am personally, and I've, I've become more optimistic as time has um, gone on this year. Um, it, a lot depends on every one of us, though, in the industry. Um, to demonstrate even more than ever the value of face-to-face -face events. I think this has been a year where, well, the corporate market in particular um, have dipped into virtual events for the first time. And I'm certain that a lot of bosses are thinking, why now? Why go back to face-to-face, -to -face? you know, putting people on planes and trains and uh, in hotels? Um, a lot of people have tried virtual and there's no doubt about it we're going to lose some we're going to mm. lose some of those customers for those short events routine events where you know it's half a dozen participants they all know each other there's no need for networking and mm. um, there's a i would say and this is me speaking as, as a mice person <laughs> even i would say that some of those are better um online there's yeah. no justification and i shouldn't say that if I, I wouldn't say that if i was a hotel or an airline but mm. I'm saying it. Um, but the rest of um, the, the different types of meetings, especially associations, of course, um, should come back. Um, and it's up to us how quickly they come back and, and how much they come back. Because mm. it's going to be really important for every man and every woman in our industry to be very clear in their own heads about the value that we bring, that face-to-face -face events bring to the participants. We're going mm. to have to those arguments in our head um, and really be ready when we speak to clients who are maybe hesitating and maybe thinking well we were fine you know online no you weren't fine we need mm. to remind them of all the limitations of online events people are sick to the back teeth of them and uh, mm. you know you there's so much that you cannot do um, online but we need to have those arguments very clear in our own heads about the value not about our individual uh, services as suppliers, but of the industry and of face-to-face -face, um, events. So it's it's on our shoulders really um, to create that bright future. I would say. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, th I think if we fixate on too much on things that are outside our, our control, then you know the great return could be a bit of a damp squib. I think you're absolutely right. I think the industry uh, meeting planners, venues, convention bureau that's what they have to do they have to 
to have a very clear value proposition um, for, for the great return when it happens. I mean, if you look towards the end of this year already, it's very difficult to, to book venues, for example, in the UK. So there is obviously um, a thirst for face-to-face to come back. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Rob. It's been uh, great to hear all your insights. And if our listeners want to find a copy of your report, we'll post it in the uh, in this edition of Deep Dive, which people can find on amimagazine.global. But uh, for now, Rob, it's been a pleasure. James, thank you very much for the invitation. I've enjoyed every minute.